13, we're going to finish the book tonight, beginning in verse 18 and through the end. It's been almost a month since we uh, looked at this epistle the last time together. So uh, you notice on your handout, it says, Living Like a Christian, Part 5. And uh, it's because I couldn't think of a better title for the last five sermons. It's always easy to put, you know, part two, part three, just kind of, it's kind of like a Puritan thing or something, you know. But anyway, what I thought we'd do, since it's been almost a month since we uh, were together in this epistle, turn back to actually the beginning of chapter 13. And uh, let me review briefly to uh, give us a running start here at at this last chapter. Chapter 13 really is a a chapter of great application of the tremendous doctrinal truth that has been repetitively taught to us through this epistle. And really, you know, the sermon title may not be all that inventive, but it, I think it's accurate enough to convey what the, what the apostle, what the writer is trying to communicate to us here, and that is that to live like a Christian has certain implications. All the Theology that's gone before has to work itself out in our lives. There's a certain way we're supposed to be, certain things we're supposed to believe, certain actions that we're supposed to take or refrain from taking, certain behavioral patterns and thoughts that should occupy our hearts and minds if we are indeed beneficiaries of the great truth that has been taught in these first two chapters that Jesus Christ and in His blood indeed the new covenant has come and we have been marked made partakers of it. So just reviewing here, uh, verses 1 through 3, we looked at them some time ago, and we noted there that there were three volitional commitments that uh, spring out of those verses. They were that we must love, uh, we must will to love the brethren in verse 1. We must will to love strangers, verse 2. And in verse 3, we must will to empathize with the persecuted. So those are necessary implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, verses 4 through 6, we were challenged there to, on, with regard to our perspective on life. And we were, we were challenged to have a godly perspective. First, verse 4, with regard to marriage or towards marriage. Our perspective towards marriage has to be a godly perspective. And then, verses 5 and 6, we have to have a godly perspective towards money. Then in verses 7 through 17, a rather lengthy session or section, we noticed five necessary steps that we must take. And those were verses 7 and 8, that we must duplicate godly role models. Verse 9, we must dodge bad doctrine. Verses 10 through 14, we must discard old ways. Verses 15 and 16, we must devote ourselves to worship. And verse 17, we must defer to our leaders. So that kind of brings us up to where we are now, verses 18 through 25. It's been 15 months since we began this trek through this epistle. You'll notice your handout, it says uh, number 36, and that is indeed true. We have preached 36 messages taking us through this epistle to the Hebrews. So as we look tonight at the last great section together, verses 18 through 25, we're going to see three duties, 
Three duties that we must fulfill in order to live like a Christian. Let me read the text for you. Apostle writes here, closing this out this letter, he says, Pray for us. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Three duties that spring from this text. Verses 18 through 21, again on your handout, we must pray for each other. A duty of living the Christian life, living like a Christian, includes a duty to pray for one another. And that's what the Apostle says here. We'll explore a little more in a moment. Beyond that, verse 22, we have a duty to submit to the Scriptures. We must submit to the Scriptures in order to live like a Christian. And lastly, verses 23 through 24 is we must maintain relationships. We have a duty as a Christian to maintain relationships. So let me work these out with you over these next minutes together. First duty, we must pray for each other. That's what James says. James chapter 5 verse 16 says that we are to pray for one another. Prayer for one another is a call to a relationship. It is another way of talking about relationships. We don't pray for people whom we don't know or for whom we don't care. Indeed, our our prayer life is a measure of our relationship with other believers. And so in closing this section of this great epistle here, the author exhorts them to pray for him and he in turn Praise for them. And so there is a reciprocal relationship of prayer going on in these verses 18 through 21. You can see it ends with, uh, with Amen. It tells us we are looking here at a prayer. So let's kind of pull it apart a little bit. Verses 18 and 19, he says, pray for us. So it's a request on the part of the, the apostle here, the writer, to this Church, remembering this is a, this is a uh, Hebrew Christian congregation located somewhere, perhaps in Palestine, undergoing great uh, trial and persecution for their faith. And this uh, writer, this apostle, uh, finishing up his epistle to them, calls for them to pray for, for him, for, that, for us, it says, verse 18. That is, those that he has with him. Now, this Call for prayer, it uh, says pray for us. And uh, then verse the end of verse 19, it says that I may be restored to you the sooner. says that there's a relationship here between this writer and this church. 
This is not just that he's, that he's written this great theological uh, uh, treatise and then sent it off blindly to this congregation. There is a relationship going on here. And in, in fact, <clears throat> that uh, where he says restored to you sooner, meaning that he's been there with them at some time. Indeed, he is probably one of the leaders of the church, one of the perhaps earlier leaders of the church. And he's now away for whatever reasons, and we don't know these reasons. But what we do know is that there is a good relationship going on here, such that he feels very comfortable asking them to give him prayer support. He's calling upon them for prayer support, those with whom he formerly ministered. You know, every servant of Christ, every minister of Jesus Christ needs prayer support. They need the people with whom they minister and to whom they minister to raise them before the throne of grace in prayer. Servants of uh, God, church leaders, are sons of Adam. They are sons of Adam and they have feet of clay. They are mere mortal men with all of the frailties and all of the weaknesses of mortal men. And so they need the prayers of the people of God. Beyond that, there is a, there is a sense in which the satanic attack, the spiritual warfare is intensified. We spoke of this this morning with regard to the life of the elder. There is a way in which Satan would love to trip up those in leadership of God's church, for in doing so, he causes great damage among the people. And so there is a, there's a tremendous need for prayer support among leadership. And that's what he says here. Pray for us, verse 18. He's just making a very simple request of them. Pray for us, he says. You know, the, uh, the great apostle Paul never hesitated to ask for prayer support. The great missionary church planter Paul, right? The one who had all of that knowledge of the scripture gained in his, his years as training in a rabbi and, and then brought to fullness through his conversion to Jesus Christ. The one who would possess such incredible spiritual giftedness, such a, a keen theological mind. If, if anybody didn't need prayer, you would say that he would be him, yet... Frequently, he calls out to the churches to pray for him. Listen to what he says over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He writes to the church there at Ephesus, he says, Pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul says, pray for me so that when it comes time for me to open my mouth for Jesus Christ, I would do so. And I would do so with boldness. It's not a sign of, of, of weakness. Well, indeed, it is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of dependence upon God to call out for prayer. And the Apostle Paul was not hesitant to do that. And the writer here is not hesitant to do it as well. He says, pray for us. And then notice what he says here. He, he talks about his conscience or the conscience of he and those that are with him. He says, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. What's he talking about here? Well, what he's saying is that we have, we have searched our own heart 
We have searched our own heart here, and to the best of our knowledge, we have ministered faithfully. We have ministered faithfully among you, and we have ministered faithfully among those whom we now reside. Not perfectly. We're not saying we've ministered perfectly, but we have ministered faithfully. Therefore, we have earned your prayers. We have earned your prayers. We have a right to them. Before God, we have a right to expect you to pray for us. Our conscience here is clean in these matters. We have a good conscience. Therefore, pray for us. We expect it of you. Now, ministry that is done poorly, ministry that is done shabbily, will not be transformed into quality by the prayers of God's people. You cannot um, you know, do a sloppy job all week in the study, spending no time in the Word of God, not, not immersing yourself in it to prepare, and then come in here and expect that the people of God will pray for you, and, and, and miraculously, the, the crud that you came into the pulpit with will be transformed into gold. Okay, that doesn't happen. But you can spend a lot of time in the study, You can translate the passage from the original language, you know. You can read all the commentaries. You can, you can outline the text. You can, you can have a great homiletical proposition and a strong structure and great illustrations and personal applications and all the technical points of homiletics. Yet if the people of God are not praying, the thing just drops off the end of the pulpit. It's dead. It needs prayer because it is a spiritual Endeavor. It is a spiritual enterprise. Ministry is spiritual and therefore it does need prayer. It needs the involvement of God's people through prayer. Notice what else he says here in verse 19. He says, I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. He hopes to get there. To be restored to them. This, this word restored, it, it, it can speak of being released from prison. So that's possible, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. Um, even down, you'll let your eyes drop down to verse 23. It would seem to imply there that he is not in prison. Timothy was, he is not. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, but what it does mean is that, is that the relationship will be restored. He will physically come from wherever he is to be with them. But beyond that, notice he urges them all the more to do this. Why? That I may be restored to you, look at the end of the verse, the sooner. Do you see that? That I may be restored to you the sooner. What's the point? The point is that this author, this apostle, this writer under divine inspiration of the Spirit of God has a deep conviction that the prayers of God's people will make a difference. It will make a difference. If they pray and they do it with a sense of urgency, something will happen sooner than it would ordinarily happen. Grab a hold of that and think about that for a moment. He is saying that prayer makes a difference. It is not just mouthing words, you know, up into the sky. It is, it is communicating with the, the creator God of the universe who is all sovereign and, and can intervene in the events of time and space and change how things work out. 
He's saying prayer makes a difference. He has faith in the power of prayer. As simple as that. He has faith in the power of prayer. If they pray, something will happen. If they don't, it won't. I don't know about you, but that's pretty energizing, huh? We need to grab a hold of that thing. We, we have corporate prayer meetings here, right? First Sunday evening of every month. We can get a lot more people to come out to a preaching meeting than we can get to come out to a prayer meeting. Why? Because people don't believe the prayer does anything, I think. That could only be my conclusion. Is that somehow they are not yet persuaded that whether they come and pray or don't come and pray, it actually changes things. It actually matters. The apostle here is positive that it matters. That prayer makes a difference. Now that kind of faith and the power of prayer is not resting with him alone. It has been known by the saints of God throughout time. D.L. Moody. You all heard of him, right? D.L. Moody used to wire back to, um, to R.A. Torrey, Reuben Torrey, who was at that time the, uh, the head, the president of Moody Bible Institute. When D.L. Moody was out in an evangelistic campaign somewhere far away. And he would wire back to, to uh, Tory and he would beseech him to gather the students and the faculty to pray for him as he was preaching the gospel. And the faculty and students would, would do that. Moody was convinced, and by the way, so was Tory and the faculty and the students, were convinced that if they got together and prayed, that Moody's preaching would be more effective. More effective. And so they would stay up in response to these requests, and they would pray sometimes all night long. Moody frequently attested to the fact that when they prayed, he received great power from the Spirit of God. Great unction of the Spirit of God would come on him. Great freedom in his preaching. And that many, many would be converted to Jesus Christ under his preaching. Beloved, do we desire preaching that converts people? Is that what we're after? Are, do, we, do we desire the preaching to be effectual in people's lives? Do we care whether week in, week out, when we, when we preach and then we finish, and then we say, you know, if, if, if God is moving in your heart, you, you, know, you come to this lighted cross, we want to talk to you about Jesus Christ, and week in, week out, nobody comes, do we care? Do we think anybody's going to really come? Do we pray for anybody to come? If we don't pray, then we shouldn't expect anything. We should expect nothing to come of it all if we are not willing to bathe it in prayer. Some years back here, we began an 8 o'clock prayer meeting. 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. 8 to 8.30. And the the reason we gather to pray at that time is for the preaching of the Word of God that Sunday morning. That it would be effectual in the hearts and minds of God's people and of those that are lost among us. Not knowing who's coming through the door that Sunday morning by divine arrangement. Not knowing who's sitting in the pew perhaps year after year that do not know Jesus Christ and perhaps think they do. For those who are believers, 
who are struggling in some area in their lives and need the Spirit of God to make the Word effectual in their hearts, we gather and pray. We pray for the teaching of the Word in the Sunday schools, beginning with the younger ones, right up through the adult ministries. We gather and pray. Why? Because it makes a difference. Because we believe it makes a difference. Do you know before Spurgeon preached and during while he was preaching, there would be people gathered in in another section of the Metropolitan Tabernacle praying through the whole sermon? The great Charles Spurgeon, right? Under whose ministry thousands were converted. There was a powerful undergirding of prayer that sat underneath it. Beloved, we need to pray. We need to pray. That's what the apostle said. Look at it again, verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, he says. I urge you to do this. All the more because it makes a difference. Pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the effect of the gospel. Pray that the preaching would be powerful and effectual. And then, verses 20 and 21 Leaders pray for people. It's a reciprocal relationship. Remember I said that. He's urging them to pray for him. He now will pray for them. Verses 20 and 21 is his prayer for them. It takes the form of a benediction. It's a benedictory prayer, but it is nonetheless a prayer. He is praying that that God the Father will mature them in Jesus Christ. That's the... That's the, his prayer in a nutshell here in verses 20 and 21. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good work to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen, he says. He's praying that God will mature them in Jesus Christ. Notice now in verse 20 how he begins this prayer. He talks about the God of peace. The God of peace. That's a, that expression is used four times by the Apostle Paul in some of his letters. And in those circumstances when he uses it, 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 um, it typically speaks about uh, to a congregation that's having conflict. And so he's emphasizing the peace of of God, that God brings peace within a fellowship. But I don't think here that that's the way it's being used. I've become uh, persuaded, following after uh, uh, one commentator, that, that the expression here that's being called to mind is something different. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Exp- I think that's being called to mind by that expression. In fact, you can uh, go ahead. This It's always good to move around in the Scriptures a little bit, right? Keeps you uh, agile. So go ahead to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Probably have this thing uh, decoupaged or something hanging on the wall in your living room. Right? Totally yanked out of context and applied to a situation to which it does not apply. But that's okay. We like to do that with our favorite Bible verses, right? Rest them from their context, treat them like a wax nose, and shape them the way we like them. Anyway, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. 
It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, that is actually peace, shalom, and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for shalom, plans for peace, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. There is a context in which Jeremiah 29 occurs. The context is that the nation of Judah, right, the southern kingdom, is soon to be swept away into Babylonian captivity. And under that Babylonian captivity, the intense persecution that will arise there, it would be easy to become discouraged and think that that the light of the lamp of David will be snuffed out that the people will be eliminated, that the pressure and the intensity of the persecution is so strong that they will not survive. And God says to them, He comes to them through the prophet Jeremiah, and He says, I know the plans that I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. I have plans for your welfare, that is for your peace, and not for your calamity, to give you a future and a hope. You will not be snuffed out. In the persecution, you will last through the 70-year exile into Babylon. You will come back into the land. Indeed, that's what Jeremiah speaks of. And so taking that thought and, and applying it here, and I think that's what the writer is doing. Remember, he's writing to a Hebrew Christian congregation who is steeped in the Old Testament, and not only just in, in the, the actual quotes of the Old Testament, but the, but the theology and thinking of the Old Testament. And so I think he's uh, applying that to them here. And what he's saying to this Hebrew congregation is, you also believe that you are in danger of being overrun. The persecution is intense. You're in danger, or you think you're in danger of being overrun, but let me assure you that God will not abandon you. God will not abandon you. The God of peace, the same God who promised through the mouth of Jeremiah that the nation would not be extinguished back then, is promising to you now that you still are secure in Jesus Christ. It is God's faithfulness on your part that will sustain you through these difficult days. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, right? He's speaking here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the accomplishment of Christ. It is Christ who is their atonement. It is, it is Christ who has died on that cross, whose, whose blood has been shed on their behalf, that has now been resurrected from the dead, evidencing to all that His atonement was perfect, that it was satisfactory, that it met all the requirements, and that in Jesus Christ they are indeed free. This blood of, he calls it the eternal covenant. He's talking about the new covenant. Jesus Himself said in the night in which He was betrayed, when He offered the bread and the cup, right? He says, drink, this is the blood of the covenant. It is the new covenant that he is being talked of here. The eternal covenant is the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a temporal covenant. Isn't that true? It was a temporal covenant. It was never made to go on indefinitely. Even while it was still in effect, God was prophesying through the prophets, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and many others, that there would be a new covenant coming. That new covenant, beloved, is eternal. And the reason it's eternal is because it is sealed in the blood of the eternal Son of God, whose death on that cross, when he said to Telestai, it is finished. The work has been done. There is nothing more to come. This is the eternal covenant 
Even Jesus, our Lord here, he says, verse 20, God's wrath and justice were satisfied on that cross in Jesus Christ. Now, because of that atoning sacrifice of Christ, verse 20, he makes a request on behalf. He's requesting of the Father on behalf of these people. And his request, verse 21, is that they would be equipped in every good thing to do God's will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That they would be equipped, he's praying. The word means to mend. It's used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, of fishermen mending their nets. It's translated to restore in Galatians 6.1. It can be translated as it is here to equip. In classical Greek, it referred to the setting of a broken bone. It's putting something back together. That's the point of it. Putting something back together. The prayer request is that God would mend and restore His children with every good thing, thus equipping him to, them to do His will. Well, what is His will? What is His will that they need to be equipped to do? The context of the book of Hebrews, it is to stand firm in the face of persecution. It is to refrain from trying to flee back under the old covenant. It is, a, it is to, to jettison all which would seek to come alongside Jesus Christ and to cling to Him alone. His finished work on that cross. Christ was the perfect sacrifice. His sanctifying work equips the believer to live appropriately before God. And what He is saying is that God would equip you to every good thing to do His will, that is to stand firm for Jesus Christ. That's his prayer request. You know, um, we have those uh, cards in the pew fronts, right? Pew racks and, and Sunday mornings. And uh, periodically, someone will go up there and say, fill out those cards. You know, we like to pray for you. And we do pray for you. We pray for you in uh, staff meetings. We pray for you personally. And uh, we pray for you as elders in elder meetings. And uh, so we love to get those cards. But many times uh, when those cards come in, I, I have to confess that I might not exactly phrase my prayer the way that it's been phrased on the card, if that's okay with you. Um, because uh, my prayer request for you um, generally runs along these lines. And, and let me take you to Ephesians 3. Let's do it that way. And say that that might at times be different than, or perhaps even in conflict with, uh, your prayer request. But since you asked me to pray... Uh, this is how I'm praying for you. Probably when I finish this, nobody will ever send me another prayer card, right? Well, Pastor, I thought you were, you were praying that, you know, my big toe would feel better. Well, actually, no, I, I, I honestly don't pray like that very often. This is more along the lines of the way we would pray for you. Verse 16, Ephesians 3. Paul says his prayer there to the church at Ephesus is that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, what is that? That's a prayer request is that you would begin to, to know and live like a Christian. So when your big toe really hurts you, 
Uh, and that's your prayer request. My answer is, is that, Lord, help this affliction of their big toe cause them to live like a Christian. What about taking it away? Well, if it's helping you to live like a Christian, you know, make the other one hurt, too. You know? That's the, that's the way we pray for you. We'll never get a card now, Art, but... I mean, it's a, it's a prayer that your problems would drive you to Christ. That you would be strengthened in the inner man. That you would know the love of Jesus Christ. That you would stand firm in the face of affliction. So we have to pray for each other, beloved. That's a duty. That's a duty. It's not an option. By the way, it's imperatives, you know, grammatically, that are laced through this text. This, uh, this pray for us, verse 18, that's a command. It's a command. So, it's a duty for us here to pray for each other. Secondly... Verse 22, we must submit to the Scriptures. There's another duty here of living like a Christian, and that is got to submit to the Scriptures. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Bear with this word of exhortation. Now, the, uh, the writer here, the apostle, is he understands that he has written to them in a pretty forceful way. All right? I mean, maybe, maybe you forget some of the things he said, like... Uh, like, why don't you go back to uh, chapter, uh, the end of chapter 5, for example, where he's talking there about Melchizedek, right? And he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. That's a popular way for a preacher to address his audience. All right? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. The elementary principles of the oracles of God, you come to need milk and not solid food. <coughs> Excuse me, you're acting like a baby. He says, this thing is laced with those kinds of statements. So he, he's, he knows that he's come on pretty strong. He's been very forceful in what he has written to them here. And so he's calling to them to, to bear up under this. Not to, uh, not to, you know, close your ears, stick your fingers in your ears like my granddaughter does now. I think it's cute. When you talk to her, she puts her fingers in her ears. So uh, her mom and dad are going to break her of that habit after... <laughs> After I get done laughing about it, because I think it's incredibly funny, but but has dangerous long-term implications, obviously. So, about another two weeks, and then you can break her of that habit. But that's not how we're to respond, right? We're not to, figuratively speaking, stick our fingers in our ears. How often we do such things, right? We hear the Word of God read, and we zone out. The preacher is, uh, is working away through the text. We don't bother to turn to the cross-references. We kind of sit there, and we just, you know, and it's in one ear and out the other. But he's saying, bear with this word of exhortation. Hold up under it. He's urging them not to be like uh, the, the Apostle Paul talks about people in 2 Timothy 4.3. They have itching ears, right? And they won't bear with the message. They won't listen. They won't heed it. They won't hold up under it. He's saying, bear with this message. Hang in here. Hold up under this message. Listen to the word of exhortation. Now, what is the word of exhortation? What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about this whole epistle. He's talking about this all 13 chapters, he's saying. Listen to these 13 chapters. The, uh, this, uh, this Greek word, by the way, or this expression, I guess, the word of exhortation, she used uh, over, uh, Luke uses over in Acts chapter 13, verse 15. And there it uh, refers very clearly to a sermon. 
When it's used over in, uh, by Luke in Acts 13, 15, the, word, the expression word of exhortation refers to a sermon. And that fits really well here, by the way. Hebrews is a sermon. That's really what it is. Uh, chapter 13 is, is the application point, And at the very end here, there's a few personal items tacked on to the end. But Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, verses, chapters 1 through 13, is, is basically one sermon. And, and notice that he calls it, I've written to you briefly. You see that, verse 22? This is a brief sermon, he says. <clears throat> and indeed it is. There's less than 10,000 words. It's shorter than the book of Romans, shorter than the book of 1 Corinthians, which are also, you know, one letter to be read at one time. Perish the thought, right, that any of us could sit still long enough to read 1 Corinthians in one setting. Well, you know, how could we do such things? But it's really not very long. You can read this book, by the way, in, in less than an hour. You can sit down and read Hebrews in less than an hour. It's brief, he says. Now, the brevity certainly refers to its length. I mean, he has, he has dealt with some amazing topics in which he's just really scratched the surface. I've written to you briefly. I have not fully elaborated all what could be spoken of in the points that I've raised in this sermon. Some pastor in Upland has been working at it, you know, for, for 36 hours. And he has barely scratched the surface of what's involved here in this presentation of Jesus Christ. This is all about the supremacy of Christ. This will be just right across the front of the book. Right? It is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And he says, I want you to submit to this. I want you to bear with this. This explanation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You know, beloved, it is so hard to submit to the Scriptures. Let's be honest with each other. It is a hard thing to do. I mean, it's, it's easy to submit to the parts that we've already got nailed down, right? You know, we're really good at that. But it's the parts that, uh, that you know, sort of rebuke some ingrained pattern that we have or some behavior that, we, that we've got or some thought process. Those are the parts that's hard to submit to. The stuff where we've already got it squared away, then, you know, that's all. Oh, yeah, I can live with the Scriptures. That's easy. It's when it confronts me. You know, it depends whose ox is being gored, as they say. That's when it gets difficult. It's also amazing to me how quick people are to, to, um, to come alongside someone and exhort them from the Scriptures so forcefully in an area in which they themselves have it squared away and the other person is obviously struggling. Right? Take the log out of your own eye, right, before you pull the speck out of somebody else's. But it is hard to receive the Scriptures. Let me, uh, let me see if I can illustrate this for you. In 1983, the pastor John MacArthur released his commentary on Hebrews. Okay, 1983, he released that commentary. And in that commentary, in print, he revealed his interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. We won't bother to go back there, but, but just kind of follow the train of thought here. In, in his interpretation of Hebrews 1 verse 5, Five, which is a, a quote, if I remember it correctly, of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. In that, he, John came to the conclusion that what was being communicated, yeah, let's go ahead and look at it. What was being communicated there was that what is, what is called incarnational sonship. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That's the, the point. And what, what John wrote in that commentary, the position that he held at that time or believed, was that, that at the moment of incarnation, that the second person of the triune Godhead became the son. And he interpreted that as an, un, an understanding of, of submission. And clearly the Bible teaches that in the incarnation that Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. There is no question about that. John's understanding of that verse in that chapter is that it was evidenced by his voluntary assumption of the role of son. It's called incarnational sonship. Now, it is, it is an orthodox opinion, although it is a minority opinion, and it still falls within the pale of orthodoxy. But immediately upon the release of that Hebrews commentary back in 1983, he was criticized in some quarters. And in fact, in 1989, he had to appear, or I don't know if he had to, but he agreed to appear before a plenary or general session of the IFCA, which is the, is the group that, uh, that ordained him to the gospel ministry. He agreed to appear before that group uh, in order to answer his accusers who were accusing him of, of uh, heresy. And, and accusing him of teaching that Jesus Christ was not fully divine, it was somehow less than the Father. And so he appeared there before his critics, he answered their questions. I actually have those tapes, they were interesting to listen to. And then later, 1991, he published a little booklet further clarifying his position. Well, in 1999... After further study, further reflection upon all of this, Dr. MacArthur published and printed a retraction. A retraction of his earlier statement, statements and interpretation of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And he adopted the more traditional understanding of eternal sonship. That the second person of the triune Godhead is eternally holds the position of son. That is the more commonly held orthodox position. And that his status as son conveys his oneness or equality with God the Father, his essence with the Father. Listen to in John's old words what he says here. He said, I am now convinced that the title Son of God, when applied to Christ in Scripture, always speaks of his essential deity and absolute equality with God, not his voluntary subordination. Now, why did I bother to read all that stuff for you? Well, here's the point. John MacArthur is a world-famous Bible teacher, right? Radio personality. Speaks at Bible conferences all over the world. Writes. He's written hundreds of books and commentaries. How easy is it, do you think, to for a man with feet of clay to humble themselves and to publicly retract something that they have defended both orally for, for 10 years in the face of accusation and in writing to come around and to say, you know what, I was wrong. I misunderstood the scriptures earlier. And I have now come to a mature understanding of what they mean. And, and what I used to believe and teach, I no longer believe and teach. And now I believe this. Well, it takes humility. 
It takes a lot of humility to do that. And it illustrates, I think, the truth here of verse 22, that to live like a Christian, we must be willing to submit ourselves to the Scriptures. That which you once held, when it later is shown to be not true, you must be willing to humble yourself, to jettison that which you once believed, to cling to that which is now you've come to know as truth. It takes a humble heart, but it means to live like a Christian. Even popular Bible teachers, pastors, and radio personalities have to submit to the Word of God. That leads us to our third duty tonight as we finish this epistle up, and that is that we must maintain relationships, verses 23 and 24. He says to them here in verse 23, take notice, and what he's communicating to them is is, uh, something they didn't know. He knows and they don't. That is that Timothy has been released. Notice he calls him our brother. He's been released. Now, we don't, most probably this is Paul's friend Timothy. We don't exactly know what's going on here. The, you know, the last mention we have is Paul's second Timothy epistle, right? Where they're from the, from the Mamertine prison in Rome. Paul calls to Timothy and he says, come quickly, right? Come before winter. Come to Rome. And so we, we assume, we believe that Timothy followed Paul's instructions and came to Rome, but we don't know what happened beyond that. It's possible that Timothy was implicated in because of his association and affiliation with the Apostle Paul and may have been imprisoned there himself by Nero. We don't know. But whatever it was, he has been now released from prison. And the, and the writer says here that, uh, that if Timothy gets to him soon, they will come together. They will come together to greet this church. So Timothy also knows this congregation. They are in relationship with each other. Beyond that, notice what he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Express your greetings one to the other, is is what he's saying here. Now, it's kind of a, maybe it's an unnecessary statement to make or point to make, but let me go ahead and run the risk of being pedantic and do it here anyway. And that is, uh, it was impossible to deliver this letter to to the first church of the Hebrews. Okay, they did not have a postal address, right? Isn't that true? There was no postal address. There was no way to deliver the letter to the church. We get letters all the time addressed to Foothill Bible Church, 1330 West 15th Street. They arrive here. But at this time and place, they owned no property. There was no way to write a letter and address it and mail it to the church. And so it was sent to someone. That's the point. It was delivered to someone. Some few members probably of that local church. And what he's saying to these people when they get the letter is that you, you should, should, this letter should be read to the congregation and you should express my love and greetings to all of your church leaders and to all the rest of the congregation as well. They're in relationship with each other. They're in a relationship that can stand the stress of distance, time, even adversity. He says here, those from Italy greet you. This expression is somewhat ambiguous. It could mean those from Italy, that is, the Italians greet you. Or it could mean that those who are presently in Italy greet you. 
Grammatically, it's not possible to say one way or another, and so it's, it's really not all that much help in trying to formulate where this letter is coming from, where it's going to, and who wrote it. So we can't really pin down the authorship by that. But the point of these verses, what I can draw away from these verses, is that these people are in relationship with each other. You know, people, people move. I mean, in our day and age, right? People, people leave, they, they move away from the church, they have business opportunities or something takes them elsewhere. People move for personal reasons, family reasons, they move elsewhere, they kind of move around, don't they? Well, they did in the first century as well. People moved around. Yet they remained in contact. They remained in contact. One of the reasons they remained in contact is because there wasn't a church on every corner. You know, they, they craved Christian fellowship. And so they remained in contact with each other even when they had moved away. Today in the church, unfortunately, there's a much more casual uh, attachment between members of the church, the membership of the body of Christ. People still move away for business reasons. People still move away for personal reasons. But you know the great majority of people, you know the reason they leave church? They leave a church over, over some small personal reason that doesn't that, that could be worked out, that should be worked out, typically a, a question of personal preference. And what it really highlights is the fact that they are not fully integrated into the body of Christ in that local place. Their relationships are not strong. They are not deep. They are not sufficient enough glue to bond them together to be able to overcome the struggles of life. Beloved, we need to maintain our relationships with each other. We need to be glued together. We need to be glued together. We need to have a relationship one with another that is strong enough that it can sustain the jolts that come when you have a whole bunch of sinful people rubbing shoulders real close with each other, huh? Because that is indeed what the church is like. The writer here finishes and says, Grace be with you all. The only way they're going to be able to live like a Christian, the only way they're going to be able to live in accordance with what has been expressed to them here is they're going to be fully dependent upon the grace of God. And so am I and so are you. It is the grace of God that makes this possible. So we finish this book. What do we walk away with tonight? How do we apply all this? Let me give you some suggested applications that that are bigger than just this section. I want to I want to apply the whole book. If you'll permit me to do that. I've got 3 minutes to apply the whole book of Hebrews, all right? Okay, Ron, you don't want to sing anymore, do you? I didn't think so. All right, here we go. Let me just offer you four points of application for this whole great big epistle. It is the clear and consistent message of this epistle that Jesus Christ is superior to everything else. He is superior to everything else. Beloved, that means he's superior to your friends. He's superior to your family. He's superior to your job. He's, he's superior to your, your traditions. He's superior to your habits. He's superior to your preferences. He's even superior to the Mosaic law. Jesus Christ is superior to everything. Everything. And therefore, here's the application point, Everything must give way before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
It is to Christ alone that we owe ultimate allegiance. Everything else bows before him. Everything. Second, to attempt to add anything to the supremacy of Christ or to retain anything in addition to Christ is to invite spiritual disaster. It is to invite spiritual disaster. Because what will happen is, inevitably, the superiority of Christ will be diminished. He will be pushed down. He will begin to occupy second place. And whatever it is that is being held or trying to be held onto will rise, excuse me, above him. No man can serve two masters, right? He will either love the one and hate the other or be attached to one and not the other. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and everything else has to go so you can't hang on. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the way being narrow, the gate being narrow, right? To life, you find it. It could be illustrated there by a turnstile, right? You go through a turnstile at a, at a sporting event or, or in an airport or something like that. You know, you, you got your baggage and you're trying to get through that thing. And you know, it gets hung up and it's difficult going through. The way to go through a turnstile is to drop everything and squeeze your way through. Well, that's what it is with Jesus Christ. Everything else is dropped off. You squeeze your way through with Christ. Okay, you got to leave it all behind. You can't carry anything with you. Third, living a life this way, fully devoted to Jesus Christ and a lordship of Christ over everything, invites persecution. It invites persecution. That's the message of this book. These believers were undergoing persecution and they could get away from it. They thought, if I just tone down this Christianity thing, if I just have a, have a little less or, or, or not so sharp edge on my Lordship of Christ, I mean, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, but can't I just kind of carry a little of this along with me and, and sort of make it a little more palatable to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my work associates? No. No, you can't. And see, when you live a life like that, you're going to get persecuted. It invites it in. You are so narrow, fundamental. You know, what is wrong with you? Why are you so narrow? You can see through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. You know, it's, it's because of Christ. Because of Christ. It invites persecution. But God is faithful. That's the other message of the book. God is faithful and He will see you through it. He will see you through it. And last... The last application here is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, beloved, embraced by faith, has made you perfectly righteous in the sight of God. All of your sin, all of your guilt, gone. Gone. It has been nailed to the cross of Christ. And we who were once far off, the Apostle Paul says, as Gentiles have been brought near in the blood of Christ. We have been given spiritual access to the covenant of Israel, the new covenant. The one that says that no longer does the law reside on tablets of stone. It now resides in my heart. It is written on my heart. And the spirit of God dwells within me to empower me to fulfill the law and live for his glory. The relationship has been entirely 
restored. I am in fellowship now with my Creator. And beloved, it doesn't get any better than that. huh? Let's pray. Well, our Father, we, <clears throat> we have finished going through this book and and it's been a profitable time for us. We've certainly grown in our understanding and appreciation for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, for the supremacy of Christ. We have learned many new things and our heart has been challenged to, to live out the implications of what we've learned. And so we pray for your grace to be able to do that. As the writer here bestowed grace or, or, or a blessing of grace upon them, we pray for grace to be multiplied to us so that we could live in accordance to that which we know to be true. Our Father, I thank you personally for the hours that you've enabled me to spend in this book. Lord, I doubt that I'll live long enough to go through it again. It's been a rich trip. I thank you for it. And, and pray now that you would enable me and my brothers and sisters here to, to live out that which we've learned. For Christ's sake, amen. Beloved, I'm, uh, I've held you long. I'm going to let you go. Before you leave, though, just uh, grab someone's hand and uh, tell me glad to see him tonight, huh?